previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. If we're going to have a learning curve, it's all good. Just take it easy, man. You don't need to fight over it. It'll be solved. You'll, you'll see the movie. It's all good. You got a ticket. You're in there. From Delaware, almost live, this is the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Welcome to episode 31 of the Sports Refuge Podcast, the interview show where guests share their connection to sports. I'm your host, Earl Holland. Paul Butler had a lengthy career in broadcasting spanning more than four decades, first as a radio personality in his hometown of Salisbury, Maryland, before moving on to Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia. Butler parlayed his time in radio into a career as a sportscaster and sports anchor in stops that included Mobile, Alabama, Shreveport, Louisiana, Charlotte, North Carolina, where he was a sideline reporter for the NFL and Fox, sandwiched in between his time at WBOC-TV in Salisbury. In this episode, Butler, now the Director of Communications and Community Outreach at the Wicomico County Board of Education, discusses how he first got into radio and how the changes in the industry eventually led to his transition to television journalism. Other discussions include Butler's passion and love for basketball and how it led to his time coaching at the youth and high school levels, the initial reaction to the introduction of social media and journalism, as well as his booming trademark voice. Right now, my interview with Paul Butler. This week, my guest is someone, I don't know if I want to make him feel like I'm telling age or something, but I remember going up listening to him on the radio and then seeing him transition into television and making a pretty big career of it. My guest is Paul Butler, legendary broadcaster in Salisbury, Maryland, and in on the radio airwaves as well. He was basically part of the soundtrack of my childhood in addition to, you know, as the 80s went with t- television like BET and MTV and things like that. I feel like big part of my life is listening as a young child in Salisbury, Maryland. Now that I've already probably unfortunately made you feel a little uh, going way back in the time machine, how are you today, Paul? <laughs> I am doing fantastic, girl. How are you doing? I am doing absolutely great. I- I'm glad that you were able to come on the- to the podcast and talk about your experiences as a broadcaster. And you've done a lot of things. I know currently you're working for the Wicomico County Board of Education. That is correct. Yeah, I'm director of communications uh, for the school system that I went to as a child. And uh, it just shows you, and I guess we can get into this a little bit later, how you never know where life's going to take you because there was no idea that I'd be working in education uh, later on in life because, you know, coming out of high school, I just wanted to be in radio. Uh, but here I am as director of communications for Wicomico County Public Schools. What was the transition like going from broadcasting into education? Um yeah, it was it was pretty seamless. I mean, because I guess because of my experience in broadcasting, now I deal with the media from the other side. Used to be I was part of the media, and now I work with the media on the other side. So I think that experience helped me out a lot as far as uh, you know getting into this role. The one thing I did have to learn was the culture of you know the school system. You know how things work. Um, and in the two years that I've been doing this, uh, I think it's been pretty seamless. I, I think they're happy with what I'm doing. Uh, I'm still I'm still employed, <laughs> so uh, everything is going well. But the transition was was pretty smooth. I think for the fact that I grew up in Wacomico County, I know the school systems. I knew a lot of the teachers. I knew a lot of the administrators. So uh, I think that helped with the transition. What is an average day like 
and your job? Well, uh, it's a, a pretty long day. We start at uh, 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning and go until about 5, 5.30. Or if we have events later, it could go a little bit later. But it basically starts out with me getting into the office, checking my email, seeing if there's any issues going on in the school system that need to be addressed as far as communications. Um, then we, you know, we start basically right away working on our social media. Because one of the things that we love to do is promote all the fantastic things that are happening in our school system. You know, a lot of times, you know, when you hear about the schools, it's usually something on the news. It's not, you know, the greatest news. But I'll tell you what, we have uh, 26 schools and programs in Wicomico County, and uh, there are so many hundreds of thousands of uh, great students and staff and programs and athletic teams that are doing some amazing things, um, accomplishing, accomplishing great things. And uh, one of the things we do on a daily basis is we help promote those uh, things so the public can know, so our community can know, so our stakeholders can know uh, about the uh, what's happening in our schools. And we do that on social media, you know, through Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and, and YouTube and also on our website as well. So that's one of the things that we do um, first thing in the morning. Then um, we also produce videos. Uh, and this has really helped from my TV background, is I produce videos of the various schools or the various programs. We just uh, recently wrapped up doing videos of all five of our high school uh, graduations. Um, but um, a lot of my job is basically fielding questions from the media, um, communicating with a superintendent or communicating with a school or a teacher or an administrator um, on what media wants and, and see if we can get them the information they need, even set up interviews uh, that the media may want to do with uh, our staff at uh, Wakamaka County Public Schools. Um, and then they just, you know, in the afternoons, it's usually going out covering an athletic event or covering some type of extracurricular activity, maybe a award ceremony or, or something like that, um, so that we can continue to promote it. Um, on our uh, different social media platforms. From your experience being a journalist, what was the initial thought of the advent of social media? Did you guys see it as maybe a fad? Did you guys see it as maybe a rival? Or did you guys see it as something maybe we can utilize this to the best of our abilities to get more news out? Yeah, I think when it first came out, we were always thinking, okay, what is this? You know, um, but what we learned quickly was that social media was a way that people were using to get their news and get their information. So we had to quickly um, adjust and start using it to get our information out as well. Because a lot of times in social media, things will happen and people will say, why are, you, why are you guys covering this? Why are you guys covering that? And a lot of times in the news business, we wouldn't hear about something until somebody called us or we got a, you know, a call from the police or something like that. But a lot of times we would find out about things in the news from somebody on social media. Hey, did you hear there was a shooting over here or there was a robbery here? And then that would allow us to call the different you know, police agencies or whoever to get more information about uh, exactly what was happening. So uh, we found quickly that it was a tool that we could use. And then now, of course, years after it's been around for a while, uh, social media is a big part of, uh, of journalism because 
we use it to get our message out to talk about our stories, which also helps feed us uh, at the time feed us into our you know television newscast or podcast or radio or whatever it is. So as you know, social media is amazing now because you can use that as a way to also get people to look at your your news or if you're in radio to, to tune in to the radio as well. So um, social media at the beginning weren't sure, but right now it is certainly a tool that we use uh, and, and media does use all the time. It's very interesting. I think about, I'm part of this group of ex-Gannett employees, and one of the biggest things that they talk about is how back in the early 2000s, maybe late 90s, a lot of the editors saw the internet as a fad. They didn't really think, well, not everybody's going to use it. You can't take your computer into the bathroom with you, or you can't do that while you're reading the newspaper. And especially with the evolution of telephone and cell phone technology, that all of a sudden became a primary source to go to put out information and show your news and show information. And it's interesting how if that was the same mindset, well, the Internet, you know, we don't see it as a competition. We don't see it as something that's going to be around for long. Yeah, it's Earl. You know, it's, it really takes me back to my radio days when I was a DJ, a radio personality back in the uh, early '80s when rap and hip hop came out. Everybody thought that that was just a fad; it wasn't going to be around very long. But as we know, look, it's 40 years later and it's still around. So I think everybody, you know, when whenever there's change, people are a little resistant to it, and that's in a lot of different areas because it's new to them, they're not sure about it, and I think that's how the media was at first. Just thought that, you know, this was something new, it wasn't really gonna threaten us as, you know, news, whether it was TV or a newspaper or whatever. But what we've seen is that social media has become a big player. I mean, it's been it's been huge, the internet the same way, and I think that has really hurt the newspaper industry more than anybody else. And you could probably attest to that as well, because a lot of people get their information, you know, off of the internet or off of, uh, you know, Facebook or or Twitter or whatever. Not as many people are subscribing to newspapers. Not as many people are watching television news broadcasts. Um, so I think they've all been been hurt uh, by. But the smart players in the game, especially in the in the journalism game, are now starting to use social media as a way to also reach new viewers and also bring back viewers and readers to their you know, particular outlet. I was thinking of a story when you were talking about the introduction of rap. They always talk about Soul Train and Don Cornelius, how apprehensive he was about having a lot of rap people on, especially in the early 90s. And eventually as it started growing, he sort of had to give into it. And that might be, for example, something that may have impacted that show's fate as things went on, especially in going into the 2000s. That's exactly right. You know, because I remember when I was on the radio and we started to get these rap songs and, and uh, some of our you know, music directors and, and the program directors said, hey, let's let's listen to this. I know I'm myself, I was a little resistant at first, but then, you know, we started to get uh, groups like the Sugar Hill Gang and Kumo D. Uh, LL Cool J, Will Smith, and uh, we found out that our audience wanted to hear these things. So we started to incorporate it into our, our playlist as well. 
So, like I was saying before, I think a lot of it is that because it's new, we're a little resistant to it. But, uh, you know, a lot of times these things are just innovative and we just have to come along to it. Because, look, when we first, you know, back in our old days, we had phones that were, you know, up on the wall and you had a long cord at home and you had to listen to it. And then when the cell phone came along, especially with the bag phone and all that kind of stuff, you know, we're like, what is this? You know, this is never going to work. But uh, I, I just think that, uh, you know, as time moves on, we become uh, less resistant to it and, and uh, just move along. These things, as we know, they improve. Technology improves. Uh, thought processes improve. So, I, you know, I think it's uh, incumbent on anybody to think that, uh, you know, now the Internet, social media, all this is just uh, is just the way to go, and it's the future. Who knows what's going to be next? Um, so just get ready for it. I know you talked about your radio experience, and that's one of the first things I wanted to ask you about. How did you get an interest in radio? I know that for a while I always joke and say that you changed the balance of power in radio stations in the Salisbury Ocean City market by going from WJDY to OC104, and it was big. Yeah, so... Uh, just like any teenager, I loved music, and that was the thing. I mean, you know, I just love listening to music, and uh, I was kind of a shy guy, believe it or not. In high school and in middle school and all those, I was really shy, and music was my thing, along with playing basketball. And uh, I just loved listening. I mean, whenever there was a new album came out from Commodores, Earth, Wind, and Fire, or you know, the Isley Brothers, I was like one of the first ones to get the album. I just loved music. And so I thought about, you know, what could I do to turn this love of music into a career? And since I wasn't musically inclined, <laughs> you know, I thought the best, the next best way is to play the music. So right out of high school, I uh, contacted WJDY and said, listen, I'm about to go to college. I'm going to major in communications. I want to be a radio broadcaster. Can I come in and be an intern? And uh, they said, well, we don't have any paid internships. I was like, I don't want to get paid. I just want to come in and learn the craft. Sit there and watch your guys in the DJ booth. Learn how to do production, radio production, TV commercials. I just want to learn because I want to get a head start, get a jump on others who are going to college. You're going to major in this as well. So that's where I got my start at WJDY. They brought me in the summer after my high school graduation. I just watched and watched and watched. And then a couple of months down the road, they said, hey, would you like to work part-time doing some board operation stuff? And I did that. And then, you know, a year later, I guess it was, they offered me a full-time position. So I was doing that while also going to college. So that's how I got into radio. And I worked really, really hard at it. I mean, I would tape my shows and then go back and listen to my shows, critique my shows. My hero on radio was Donnie Simpson. And I don't know if you remember Donnie Simpson. Um, he used to be the program director at WKYS in Washington, D.C., which was the number one radio station in D.C. at that time, back in the early mid-'80s. And he also was a host of uh, BET's Video Soul. So I uh, got hooked up with him and started sending my tapes to him, and he would listen to them and critique them. And then um, I just got better and better until I finally got a chance to... OC-104 opened, I think, was in 1984. And uh, I got a call from their program director saying, hey, we're looking for somebody to help us kick off this new radio station, and we think you know, you'd be a great addition. And uh, so I made the jump to OC-104 in 84, and you know, from there, I guess they say the rest is history. I uh, went on to a career 
at WKYS uh, in D.C. for a while and also did some work at Power 99 in Philadelphia. So that was my radio career. Working in radio again, I just got back into radio about a little less than a year ago. And just from when I first started as a junior in college, I noticed the technology is markedly different and the accessibility and doing a lot more on air has changed as well. When I was at Clear Channel in Salisbury about 2004, I never got on the air. I was just running the board the whole time. And since I got back into radio, I'm doing Sunday night shifts, doing a public affairs show now and it's huge and I don't know I always consider that the radio business fell in lines with the newspaper business where there was a lot of bloodletting when it came to cutting back and finances and things like that and they had to maybe rely on a few less bodies doing a lot more things and I'm glad to get back into radio I think that's like played a huge role in sort of helping me get back into something that I really missed after like 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So it all happened, um, Earl, I don't know if you the history, but it all happened, I think it was the year was 1993. Uh, the government deregulated radio. And what that meant was that companies could own more than one radio station in the same market. Uh, and it changed radio forever because you had companies like Clear Channel coming in and buying up all radio stations in a same market. So instead of having competition between five, six, ten radio stations, you now possibly would have eight radio stations under one company. Then you'd have maybe a mom and pop over here and then another privately held radio station. And what happened was companies like Clear Channel, because they bought up so many radio stations across the country, they started laying off staff. And what they would do is they would just have, um, you know, uh, central locations where they would broadcast from, and these broadcasts would be going be satellited to different radio stations um, across the country. So uh, a lot of people were, you know, there were a lot of folks who lost jobs when the deregulation of radio happened because big companies came in and just started gobbling up all these different radio stations in the same market. And before, you couldn't own, I think, more than two radio stations in the same market. So I think it was back in 1993 when that changed, radio changed for the worse, I think, um, because a lot of people lost their jobs because they were downsizing and they were just basically, like you were saying, they were just having people board up at different stations and there weren't many personalities it used to be back in uh, radio's heyday. Um, so I think we saw a big shift then, and I was glad that that was the time that I was getting out of radio and transitioning into TV because I kind of saw the handwriting on the wall that um, they weren't going to be paying big salaries to, you know, personalities anymore. I mean, people like, you know, Donnie Simpson, who were earning close to a million dollars a year in radio, companies that bought the radio stations then, we're no longer going to pay those salaries. So um, I think that was a big change back in 1993 when we saw the deregulation radio. And I think ever since then, it's gone down. I don't, and I don't think it's ever recovered. Um, I've talked to people who own radio stations. They sold their stations to get out because they couldn't compete against the big companies, the big corporations that uh, own 
you know, hundreds of radio stations across the country. Yeah, and I always just think about that, and I know there is, especially on Eastern Shore, just having the connections of people I know who worked in radio, you can talk to them and talk about the days, the pre-conglomerate era, and then the post-conglomerate era, and a lot of people say it's very, very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it is different. It's different because if you listen to a radio station, a lot of times you can't tell if that programming is local or if that programming is syndicated from you know New York or California or, or whatever. And there was a time where local was huge in radio, and I, and I think it still is, but local was huge because you would have Saturday morning remotes broadcast from, you know, maybe a car dealership or from somewhere else, and people would come out, meet the personalities, you know, and develop a relationship. You hardly ever see that nowadays um, as far as, you know, the local promotion, as far as getting out and doing events. I mean, I still think you still see it every now and then, but not like it used to be. It's all because, you know, things were happening, the programs were syndicated coming from somewhere else, so there was really no local tie know, to a Salisbury or to a Cambridge or to a, you know, Ocean City, um, because, because of the, the big conglomerates um, taking over the radio station. So I, I was really saddened by that because I loved radio. I mean, it was, it was great. You know, you worked a four-hour shift a day, did your radio shift, and after that, maybe an hour or two of working on commercials, and that was your day. You didn't have to dress up or anything. You'd come in, dress however you want. Uh, so I, I love it and, uh, you know, just had a ball doing it. And I think that, you know, once the deregulation happened, it took some of the fun out of radio. What were your thoughts on the show WKRP in Cincinnati? Did it sort of resemble the realness of what it was like at a radio station, aside from the zany hijinks like turkeys dropping from airplanes? <laughs> Yeah, I remember that, WKRP, Venus Flytrap. You know, I used to watch that show because being in radio, I was like, man, let me watch it, you know. So, I mean, um, you're right. The hijinks would never happen, but some of the day-to-day issues that they confronted with uh, the audience, with, you know, some of the personalities within a station, you had all that because you had quirky people, you know, working in different departments whether it was news or on the air or salespeople. I mean, I forget the funny sales guy's name on WKRP. But, uh, you know, we had people like that at WJDY. We had people like that at OC104. We had people like that at at WKYS. So I think uh, some of that was true, and people got to see how a radio station really operates um, and uh, all the drama that goes on behind the scenes sometimes. Uh, but no, we did not have turkeys dropping out of the helicopter for that. But uh, yeah, that that was a, it was a, to me it was um, pretty true to life about what can happen and what has happened uh, in a radio station beside the hijinks. As you made your transition to television, how did you get interested in going into TV? Well, you know, when I was in college, uh, I majored in communications. Uh, so in college, we got some TV training, although my focus was radio. We did get some TV training where we had to do some shows and some interviews and, you know, work the camera and all that type of thing. So I did have, a, you know, a somewhat interest, but I just never 
I was always so shy. I wanted to be behind the mic where nobody could see me. But my break came from Marilyn Burkle, who was the news director at uh, WBOC, and she knew that I was a big sports nut because uh, I loved, you know, baseball, basketball, tennis, football. It, it didn't matter. I mean, that's one of the things I always did love growing up. Uh, I would read about them every day. I would talk about them, you know, with friends and family. So she knew I was big in sports. So what she did is they had a sports opening, and she gave me a call and said, hey, would you like to audition for this position? And uh, I said, sure. I mean, because I never turned down a chance for another opportunity. So I came in, did the audition, and uh, I know I was terrible. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, she probably wouldn't say so, but I thought I was terrible reading the prompter for the first time in a while. I know I was sweating and everything. But, uh, you know, thankfully, they saw something in me and uh, gave me the position. And uh, I did the first year, I think, uh, in news. And then after news, uh, became a sportscaster and, and did that for, you know, 18, 19 years uh, all over the country. You know, not just in Salisbury, but we also uh, took a job uh, down in Mobile, Alabama. was my first away from Maryland job. Then I went to Shreveport, Louisiana for a couple of years, and finally ended up in Charlotte, where we did six years. Uh, and I did some sideline reporting for the NFL on Fox, the uh, Carolina Panthers down there. But uh, uh, So that was the highlight of my career, being in Charlotte. It was really, really amazing. So that was the transition, was that I just got a call from Marilyn Burkle. We'll be forever thankful for her. Um, she's still around, uh, teaching down at UMES, uh, teaching communication. So that was my break in TV. And Marilyn was my advisor my senior year at UMES, and I always remember <laughs> taking her TV production classes. One of the things she mentioned about you, she always mentioned your voice. She heard your voice on the radio, and that was one of the biggest things. That that was the big appeal, definitely. She always said, "Listen to those pipes," something along those lines. <laughs> That's, hey, that's exactly what she would always say. She says, I love those pipes. I love those pipes. And uh, so, but yeah, she was she was great. Uh, she, I tell you what, Marilyn was, uh, she made you a better journalist because when you were in that newsroom and you were putting together a story, she would just not accept anything. It had to be right, had to be accurate, and uh, she was a stickler for that. And, and because of that, I'm a, I'm a, I was a better journalist. What was the biggest transition point from going radio to television? What was the biggest difficulty that you had to deal with? I think the biggest thing was, well, I think radio prepares, because you'll see that a lot of radio folks end up in TV. And I think one of the reasons is because as radio, we do a lot of ad-libbing. So that to us comes natural. So the biggest challenge for me was learning how to write as a television journalist, write, you know, concisely to the point because, you know, in TV, your stories are 30 seconds, 45 seconds. So you've got to write, you know, get that information. It's unlike, you know, when you're writing a newspaper article, you guys have to be concise too, but you have a little bit more space a lot of the times. We had to get things done quickly. So I think my biggest thing was, one, learning how to write as a news broadcaster or sports broadcaster for TV, and then secondly, um, do it you know do it quickly and concisely, and do it so that it catches the attention of the viewer. 
because you want to make sure that your first four, five, six words, that first sentence, catches the ear of the viewer for them to tune in. Um, so that was the biggest, the biggest transition. And the next transition was when I moved to the news anchor desk was to learn how to read that teleprompter without sounding like you're reading. And that was the other big transition. But the main thing was learning how to write as a news broadcaster, nice, short, concise, to the point. Yeah, I think being concise is a very tough thing, especially just looking at it. I took a video production class uh, a few years after getting out of college, and I took one at Salisbury University. And I was able to learn how to make the packages. Making packages, that is fairly easy, especially knowing which shots to get, getting a lot of B-roll, knowing when to splice and edit. The toughest thing would be trying to write a script to match that package. And I always saw that was a little bit tough. Yeah, so that's, that's the biggest thing that new people into TV, you know, journalists right out of college, um, going to a TV job, that's one of the biggest, the toughest things is learning how to write um, concisely. That's why it's good that if you go to a TV station that you have people who are um, good editors, um, also people that can look at your script and say, okay, they can teach you how to write better to your video. Because that's the good thing. Is, is the, the big thing is you want to make sure you write to video and not just write anything, but make sure you have the video to write to. And that's one of the things that Marilyn taught me, Steve Hammond, a longtime anchor, you know, just watching him do it, uh, learn from him as well. So if you have some good mentors and some good role models at that TV station when you start, that is so, so big to me um, to learn how to be able to do that. And, and I tell people in anything, in any way in life, is to find yourself a mentor. Find somebody who's doing what you're doing, but that is really good at it and just do what they do. They're successful for a reason. Success leaves clues. If they're doing it and they're successful, why not you, you know, use what they've been doing? That doesn't mean you have to copy them, okay? But you can use some of their tricks of the trade to make yourself better. So, uh, you know, I think having them around really helped me in my transition to become a better writer. What would you say in your career as a reporter and an anchor has been the biggest news event that you've covered? Well, I've covered, um, you know, a lot a lot of different elections. Cause I, I mean, I did television for 23 years, I think it was. So I, I covered a lot of presidential elections, uh, gubernatorial elections, um, you know, uh, you know, I, I covered, I think the biggest sports story that maybe I covered was Dale Earnhardt being killed. Because at that time, I was in Charlotte, and of course, he's the NASCAR's base right out of there at Concord, right outside of Charlotte. And, uh, you know, we covered that story from the very beginning for, you know, two or three weeks. Um, that was a big story that we covered um, as well. I mean, uh, President Bush also coming to Charlotte. Uh, it was a story that we covered one time, uh, but I mean there are plenty of them. There were there have been you know natural disasters. When I was in Mobile, we had a, a huge natural disaster flood down there in Mobile. That was a big one. And then when I was in Shreveport, Louisiana, it, it was actually the time where I don't know if you remember, but there was a story about the gentleman who um, 
this is a gruesome story about the gentleman who chained a, an African-American man to the back of their truck and dragged him, you know, for several miles. Um, and that was a big story that we covered um, at that time. I mean, that was a national story because it was a big hate crime. Um, so there have been a, there have been a lot, a lot of stories, and I think the, the big one for me was seeing um, how much Dale Earnhardt meant to the sport of NASCAR. But not only that, to uh, the casual fan all across the world, because people came from all over the world to honor him at his place uh, in Kannapolis, North Carolina, and we did many, many of live shots and packages of stories uh, of his death many, many years ago. Being in Carolina, is there a Mount Rushmore of Carolina sports personalities? And if so, who would you say would it be on that Mount Rushmore? Mm, that I would have to think about. I mean, in Charlotte, um, I mean, are you talking about athletes or are you talking about TV personnel? Athletes, uh, looking at that focus. Okay. okay, yeah. So if you're talking about athletes, Michael Jordan is number one. Um, there's no doubt about that. Michael Jordan, because he went to North Carolina, you know, was a Tar Heel, uh, went on to be, you know, six-time uh, winner in the NBA. And, you know, now he's, of course, is uh, owner of the uh, Charlotte Hornets. So I think he'd be number one. Dale Earnhardt would be right there. When you talk about the Carolina Panthers, uh, you know, right now, Cam Newton, would be right up there because they love and adore Cam Newton uh, in Carolina and Steve Smith with the Carolina Panthers. I mean, you can't find a fiercer competitor than Steve Smith with the Carolina Panthers. I mean, just just huge. As you came back to Salisbury, uh, one of the things I noticed, especially in addition to doing the news, you also coached a little bit of basketball, assistant coach at Parkside High School, assistant coach at your alma mater, Wicomico High School. What was that experience like, and how did you get interested in coaching? Well, uh, Earl, I actually started coaching at Y High as an assistant to Butch Waller back in 1986, 87. Um, because, I mean, my love of basketball, I, I you know, I love Y High, I always wanted to get back, so I became the JV coach for a couple of years, 86, 87, 88, I think it was, and, you know, just loved helping out the youth, wanted them to experience Y High basketball like I did, or just experience basketball in general, because I love the sport, and uh, wanted to give back, because I thought that through my experiences, I could also help out, you know, upcoming youth who wanted to learn the game, play the game the right way, and uh, I just thought that by coaching, I'd be able to do that. So um, after those three years back in the 80s of coaching, obviously I had my you know career, I had my family and all that. But then my son uh, entered high school, and when he entered high school, I wanted to be able to see all of his games. And I couldn't do that um, at working in television with my late night. So I actually took a job down at UMES, a day job down at UMES, so that I could be with my son during his high school career. So uh, it was great to be able to with, be with him every day, you know, working on his game, um, being there coaching him. I'm sure there were days where he was like, Dad, leave me alone, <laughs> you know, because, you know, I know when I was coming up, my dad would give me advice. You know how it is with fathers and sons. They, they don't think we know anything as, as a father. So they'll listen to somebody else before us. 
But uh, it was great coaching him. I think he enjoyed it. Um, I coached AAU. I actually started the Delmarva Basketball Academy. Um, and we had uh, close to 100 student athletes from across the Eastern Shore. And one of our biggest, most famous alum was uh, DeMonte Dodd out of Queen Anne's High School. Um, he was a part of our program. We had um, um, so many great players that played for us in our Delmarva Basketball Academy. And we would go out every summer. And we had, our team was called the Delmarva Lakers, and we would play all across the shore in different tournaments and won so many tournaments. I was really proud of that. Um, I did that for five years. When my son graduated, that was the last year that uh, I coached uh, youth basketball and also coached, of course, um, helping Dave Byer out at Parkside and, and uh, Coach Waller at Wahai. But it was just a great experience for me to be there and, and uh, you know, help out my son. Um, as he played high school basketball. He actually, when he went to Y.I., transferred to Y.I., he actually got a chance, and you remember the story, because you did the story, he got a chance to uh, wear my number 42 that I had in high school. When I think of you, I think a very laid-back personality. So seeing you really fired up on the sidelines as a basketball coach, it's such a stark <laughs> contrast in what I normally think. Right, right. And it, uh, that's the that's the tale of two Paul Butler. When I'm coaching basketball, I mean, I am, you know, I'm yelling, but I'm also laid back at times. But I'm really into it because I want the kids to be the best they can be. Look, we're not going to win every game, but I just want them to put the best effort because I know when I played high school, if I had just done a little bit more, if I had just pushed a little bit more, who knows what could have happened. So I don't want high school students to, to say after the high school years, man, I wish I had done this or I wish I had done that. I want to push them to be the they could be. So I was a little bit more animated on the sidelines than I am on the, the TV set for sure. When you coach with Coach Waller and coach with Coach Byer, how did the game of basketball differ from when you played? Um, I would say from top to bottom. In my opinion, from top to bottom as far as the roster goes, when I played, I think the guys were a little bit more skilled top to bottom than they are today. Now, athletically, the kids today are probably you know better because they can jump out of the gym, you know, those type of things. But when it comes to just the fundamentals, um, they aren't there the way they should be at the high school level as it was when I was playing. Because I know, you know, we all went to basketball camps every summer. We worked on our games all year round. Um, and now kids have more distractions. Um, a lot of them play the games NBA 2K. You know, you heard, you know, you know about that. They'd rather stay inside and play on the games than be outside working on their games. And I think that's the biggest difference because we would have just basic drills for kids um, during practice and a lot of them couldn't get the basic drills down just because of, of fundamentals they weren't where they should be so I, I think that was the biggest thing and the other thing is attitude too because now a lot of parents have uh, told their kids that they are all world that they are this they're that because of us a lot of it has to do with AAU and a lot of kids feel like they don't have to listen to the coach um, they, and, and they have their parents to back them up. Their parents will say, you know, parents will go in and argue with the coach um, instead of saying, listen, you need to listen to what the coach is telling you. Uh, so I think we have too many coaches now, um, and, and I know some people might not agree, but I think we have too many coaches, and those include the parents, 
during games. Now, it's nothing wrong with coaching your son after the game, you know, before the game, when you're with them, but when they're on the court, let the coach, you know, do his job. One of the things, especially we talked about a little bit earlier, your voice. When did you know that you had that deep voice, that it was <laughs> very pronounced? Oh, man. Well, I think it was my senior year. My senior year, when I would talk every once in a while, I would just, you know, hear this bass come out. You know, so I don't know if my voice was changing, late puberty or whatever it was. I don't know what it was, but I would start to hear this bass, and I was like, man, where'd that go? Um, and then it just gradually that I was just talking like that all the time. Um, and it was just a blessing because uh, it took me to where I am today as far as, you know, my radio career, my TV career, um, just having that gift uh, of, of the voice was, uh, was a blessing because I can't use this voice for singing. I can't sing, <laughs> you know, so uh, it was definitely for talking. Has there really been anyone that you noticed that maybe had a far from normal level voice that maybe had a successful radio career? Someone that are maybe a little high pitched? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, well, you know, it seems like all the people that I've worked with have had really great voices. There was one guy that didn't have so much of a high-pitched voice, but he had more of a gravelly voice, you know. It was real gravelly. It wasn't the smoothest thing you wanted to hear, but he had great personality. He connected with the viewers. And uh, just an awesome, awesome guy. His name was Kevin James. Still around, still does radio. Um, He was known for what was called the slow jams. And uh, he still works out today. He works at a radio station in L.A., believe it or not, that is owned by Snoop Dogg. And uh, he is still doing his thing, still doing the slow jams, but he had just a gravelly voice. And, you know, you wouldn't think it was the best thing for radio, but, man, did he know how to work it. And he's had a radio career since, the, you know, I would say the late 70s, and he's still doing it. When I think you said gravelly voice, I always thought of Wolfman Jack. That's a very distinct voice. And I know as being at 36 and growing up, I just saw a lot of, I guess let's say older stuff. I don't want to classify it by a time period, but I just was immersed in a lot of things that are well beyond my age. And I've heard of Wolfman Jack and I always think of that voice, which when I, think about it, I don't even know how you could talk like that because it sounds like it hurts just talking. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You're exactly right. I mean, I remember Wolfman Jack because he was when I was coming up when he was was really big, and uh, I remember listening to him. And uh, you know, he was huge. He was huge. You think about Casey Kasem, man. Casey Kasem didn't have you know the, the greatest voice, but he connected with people on the radio, and uh, he had his top forty, which was huge um, nationwide. Um, Tom Joyner. Tom Joyner doesn't have the, the bass, classic bassy radio voice. You know, he's got kind of a high-pitched at times, but, you know, he, he, his personality that connects and clicks with the viewers. Uh, so that's that's what, what's worked. And, and my story was also that I was so fanatic about, um, and 
I think that's what people have to be. If you want to be good in something, you got to be fanatic about it. I mean, I would listen to the radio at night when I was in high school. I would listen to um, guys like Hoppy Adams out of Annapolis. This was back in the 70s. Uh, we had a guy named Mr. Cool who's out of Cambridge, Maryland. This was back in the 70s. I would listen to these guys late at night because I said, man, I want to do that. Um, and I was fanatical. I would listen to it every night. My mom would say, hey, turn that radio off. And I would sneak back on and turn it back on when she left the room or whatever. So, you know, there are so many radio giants that uh, I can owe my success to because I listened to them when I was growing up. When I think of the stations that I grew up listening to, OC-104 was one of them, and I remember how eclectic it was at the time, and I always tell people, especially when there's discussions about radio in the area, I just remember how eclectic it was. I remember even up to the early 2000s, it played everything under the sun. It wasn't just R&B and rap. They played alternative music. That was probably the first time I heard Hootie and the Blowfish. I had heard it on OC-104. I, it was just everything that you could imagine, and it's just interesting. You don't see that many stations around there with real live personalities you may get those jacks or those all those ones named with the fm names right right so we had a uh, great program director at oc104 his name was dave allen just just a visionary this guy he knew how to blend all the different types of music uh, so that it wouldn't turn anybody off so if you were listening you might hear, you know, a song that you usually don't hear on R&B, but it was, you know, it was still a jam. You still wanted to listen to it. And there was a there was a term when we were coming up, which was called urban and contemporary. And it was a term that was created by Donnie Stimson uh, from WKYS. And a lot of stations started copying that. And Dave took it a little bit step further. He didn't just play, you know, you could have, you know, you could have Hall & Oates playing one minute. You could have Earth, Wind & Fire the next minute. Or, you know, you could have Steely Dan playing, you know, the next song. Or Blondie the next song. You know, or LL Cool J. And, and Dave was a master at just being able to put this together. And he actually went on to a long and prosperous career as program director at Power 99 when they were a huge power uh, in Philadelphia back in the uh, uh, 90s. So uh, I, I credit Dave Allen with putting all that together and uh, just putting together a great staff too. We had a great staff at that time with Scott Jansen and Mary Lou and, and uh, Al and uh, just some great, great people on, on the radio. And now, I, especially maybe in the past few years, I had ultimately maybe avoided listening to radio with the advent of the iPod and things like that. I would just bypass a lot of that stuff just to listen to the music I like. And one of the things I learned, especially from Bill Reddish, who was one of my college radio teachers at UMBS, he just talked about one of the things that people will listen to sometimes, not the music, because you can always hear the music anywhere. It's the personalities, it's those voices. And I look at it now, and I don't think the world of radio nowadays can build future radio stars because now you're a lot of times I feel like they're relying on veterans to the point where eventually you're going to have to replace them and not a lot of people are waiting in the wings 
Yeah, that's true. That's the sad thing about radio is there's not a lot of grooming of new talent to take over for the big radio longtime veterans. Um, you know, the Tom Joyners, the Donnie Simpsons, uh, you know, uh, because of syndicated radio and also because of satellite radio. I mean, I, I'll be honest, I don't listen to a lot of local radio anymore. I basically listen to satellite radio because you can listen to your favorite music without any commercial interruptions, you know, those type of things. A lot of those stations still do have radio personalities, but you don't have the commercials. Um, but I just don't see, like you're saying, I don't see the local stations grooming new talent to be personalities like they did when, uh, when we're coming up. And, and I think it's a shame because radio is a great medium. People still listen to it all the time, especially in their cars. I mean, I'm in my car right now. Um, so, uh, you know, I would love to see more people get into radio. I think when they do, a lot of TV stations aren't giving them the opportunity to be a personality. They're just having them as a board operator. Hey, run this program. Run this syndicated show. So, and I think that's the sad part is because um, radio's been around a long time, and I would love to see new and upcoming talent uh, take over for, you know, uh, the uh, folks that are eventually going to be phasing out. I guess one of the things, especially we say that being on a podcast, is the evolution and the advent of the podcast sort of being maybe that new radio equivalent as well in addition to satellite i feel like nowadays maybe it isn't always about the music people like hearing the content and just the unique things that people talk about yeah you do i mean and i I think it all depends too earl on just your mood because there are times when i'll get into the car and i'm saying hey i want to listen to you know such and such podcast or uh, I'll listen to a uh, personal development book on Audible or just listen to a book on Audible. Then there are times when I just want to jam, you know, and hear some jams. So I, I guess it all just depends on your mood. But the great thing is today is you have so many options between the podcast, between local radio, between satellite radio, between, you know, Audible books, audio books. There's so many options that, that people have. Um, so just depending on your mood, you can go to, and if you want to find out some information about, you know, a certain subject, you can listen to a podcast anytime. Um, as far as radio, if you want to listen to a certain personality, you've got to tune in at that time of day, or you missed it, you know. So um, I, I just love the fact that we have so many options out there now. Um, and, uh, you know, it just allows you to, to pick and choose what you want, just depending on your mood. Two things I wanted to ask you, and I often ask my guests this, and especially since you have an experience in radio and television, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions about being both in radio and in television? Biggest misconceptions? Um, well, I think that one misconception is in radio, especially, is people think radio people get paid a lot of money. <laughs> you know, because I got that question all the time. Man, you must be getting paid. You're on radio. You know, for a certain few, yes. But for most people, they were just getting an average salary. But it just depends on what market you're in. When I was working in D.C., man, and we were owned by NBC at the time, WKYS was, yes, we were getting paid. 
we were also in the union with him after us, so we were getting certainly getting paid at that time. But the local market stations, you know, people are a lot of times living paycheck to paycheck. Um, you know, so I think getting paid is, is one misconception. The other misconception in radio is I think that people think that you just go on there and you just talk. No, that's not true. You actually do show prep. You prepare for each show. You actually, you know, get yourself ready to go on. There are things you want to talk about, things you need to research, things uh, you need to produce before the show that you want to have a part of your show. So there is a lot of work that goes leading up to the show, just like in anything. If you're going to play a football game or, you know, whatever, you got some work leading up to it. And that's one of the misconceptions because some people just thought, hey, you just go on the radio and spin some tunes? Man, what an easy job. Nah, it took some preparation. And then you actually had to say something and pull it off when you were on the air. Uh, misconceptions as far as TV, I think the biggest misconception is that you just go on the air and just read the teleprompter as far as the news anchors and sports anchors go. And there's a lot of work. I mean, a lot of work that goes into it. Uh, and it all depends, too, on the different market size. When you're in a small market like Salisbury, you're doing a lot of going out and shooting your own video and editing your own video and writing the story and then anchoring. When you're in the, the bigger markets, you have people that can go out and do those things. And then you can just write and then go on the set. But I think the biggest misconception is that, you know, it's you just show up on the set and read the prompter. And then the, the other misconception, I think, that people believe that you can just walk out of college and go to a major market. That rarely happens. So you basically have to start in a smaller market and work your way up. Because, you know, I moved around a couple of times. Like I said, we started in Salisbury, went to Mobile, Alabama, then Shreveport, before I got my big break in Charlotte, North Carolina. So there are some things that you have to do um, as far as moves you have to make to work your way up. And the other thing I would tell people is, listen, make yourself as versatile as possible because you don't know where your career or where your life's going to take you. I had no idea I was going to be director of communications for Wakamaku County Public Schools. But what I've learned and what I know is that all of my experience in the media from all these times and all the years that I've been in has prepared me for this job. So whatever job you're working, do it the best of your ability and also look to improve and get better at that position. So talk with somebody who has a position that you want and, uh, you know, learn from them. But I, like I said, I think the misconceptions for TV are just that, that people think it's kind of easy uh, and uh, that you can just go out of college and walk into a network job. As we start wrapping this up, one other thing I always ask, and I had asked this to um, one of our previous guests, Scott Abraham, do you feel that television is a superficial business? Uh, well, I think in TV news, it can be. I've seen people who I would call actors, <laughs> which means uh, when that camera's on, they are, you know, totally different people than when that camera's off. And, and what I like is when somebody is off camera, I want them to be just as genuine on camera. Because I've known people who are just, you know, total... Um, uh, buttheads is always use that word um, off camera uh, and then uh, on camera you know they come on which they should do 
they come on and they do their job. But I think in that way it can be. Uh, for the most part, though, um, TV people are just the way you see them on camera usually is the way um, they are off camera, with some exceptions. There are some people who, you know, uh, people ask me a lot of times about people that I've worked with in, in TV. They say, man, that person, you know, looks like they're a great person. You know, they do this, do that. I say, yeah, they're great on TV. And I leave it at <laughs> I leave it at that. Because I don't want to bad mouth anybody, but uh, you know, for the most part, uh, I think people are are genuine the way they are on camera. What do you feel is the best way for someone, especially you've been an anchor, to engage with the audience? I think it's just to be yourself, and I think the way to do that is, and I'll just break it down this way: when I have people intern with me in whether sports or radio or TV news, I would always say, look. You don't want to come across as being smarter than the audience. You don't want to come across as you are high and mighty. You want to come across as their neighbor. Okay, That's what people want to talk to. They want to talk to somebody that talks to them like their neighbor, your next-door neighbor, or their family member. So when I go on the air and I do my sports or I do news, I talk to people just like they're my neighbor. And you'll never see me have big words in my scripts because I want a first grader to be able to understand me just as much as a 90-year-old viewer understands me. Um, I want to be able to relate to both. And so when I write, I write to uh, the acronym, acronym of KISS. So I, I keep it super simple, okay? Keep it super simple so that anybody can understand what I'm saying. And I think people relate to that. If you come across as somebody that is, you know, humble and, um, you know, don't feel like you're bigger than somebody else, people can really relate to that. And uh, I, I had often gotten, you know, people talking to me and saying, hey, you are just like you are on camera. And I'm saying, I, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Because, I, you know, I just think that we have an obligation to our viewers to not only inform them, but also to make them feel comfortable when they're watching. As we wrap this interview up, what are some of the ways people can reach out to you and contact you? All right. Well, they can reach me in a couple different ways. Uh, my email is pbutlertv at gmail.com. Uh, I'm also on Facebook, uh, also on Twitter uh, under uh, pbutlertv. Uh, so, you know, those are a couple of ways that, that people can, can reach out to me. Uh, I also have a, a business cell phone that they can reach out at 443-493-0884. That's 443-493-0884. And I uh, love talking to people. Uh, love helping people. Um, as you know, I also do some entrepreneurial stuff on the side. So if anybody wants to call me and contact me, has questions about getting into radio or television, uh, I'm certainly here to talk to you and help out in any way I can. Paul, I do really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I do look forward to having you back again. I am very interested, especially talking about different types of music as well, especially your experience working as a DJ. And I think that would be very interesting to get into a discussion about that. I, I always consider myself sort of a old soul when it comes to listening to a lot of music. The only thing I always worry about is 
that I'm losing sort of track with a lot of modern music today because I'm just so, I say, fixated with a lot of maybe some of the older music. Hey, hey, we can talk music all day. I mean, I still got a couple of cases of old albums sitting at home that I listen to. I pull it every once in a while, so we can talk music anytime. And, and you're definitely not an old soul. I got my kids who are in their 20s listening to the old stuff as well because that's all they, they know from listening with uh, me in the car when they were growing up. And I get to hear the new stuff when I ride in their car, so it, it evens out. And that was my interview with Paul Butler. I was really glad to have the opportunity to talk with him about his distinguished career and how he took a unique path to get there. If you know anyone who might be interested in this interview, don't forget to share. Next time, I'll be talking with Mike Gordy. We'll discuss how the Maryland native became a fan of the San Francisco 49ers, his love for combat sports, and much more. You can hear past episodes of the Sports Refuge podcast on Apple, Podbean, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else podcasts are heard. Don't forget to check out our blog post at thesportsrefuge.com. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at the Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at the Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.